Who's attacking the keyboard? <laughs> Who's the keyboard attacker? Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 65 of the Freelancer Show. I almost said Ruby Rose. It's, it's been a long day. Anyway, um, this week on our panel we have Jeff Schoolcraft. Hello. Eric Davis. Hey. Ash Dryden. Hi there. Curtis McHale. Hello. Ruben Lerner. Hello there. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And uh, this week we have a special guest and that's, I know I'm going to say your name wrong again, it's Jevin uh, Maltes. Yeah, that's pretty good, man. It's it's French Canadian, so it's <laughs> Malte or Malte, basically um, silent S. But yes, hi, good to be here. <laughs> awesome. So, uh, do you want to introduce yourself really quickly? Sure. Yeah. So, um, my name's Jevin. I'm a uh, software consultant in Ottawa, Canada, and we basically build. Well, we. It's funny when we talk about we. It's actually just me. But then you know you have subs and stuff. But yeah. So I build uh, end-to-end products, specializing in rapid development. Uh, for clients. And um, yeah, I'm just coming out with a book in the next two weeks called uh, Next Level Freelance, um, designed for freelancers who want to opti- optimize their business for happiness. So it takes a bit, of, helps people take a bit of time to uh, figure out what it is that really makes them happy. And then from there, turn those into strategic business goals and then actionable stuff to make that happen. So yeah, so the actual website's nextlevelfreelance.com. The Lean Pub thing didn't work out. I had some issues with it. But uh, yeah, nextlevelfreelance.com. That's the long kind of intro slash plug. All right. So what we actually brought you on the show to talk about is how to handle basically objections based on the core technology you're using. So for most of us, that's Ruby. For one of us, that's PHP. Brutal. Yeah, so absolutely. I mean, I think any with any technology that you're, that you're bringing in to, to, that's new or kind of innovative or even disruptive in some cases, uh, there's going to be resistance from people who are used to uh, their own kind of legacy system or just older technology. And so when, even when it's, uh, it's a, maybe a better technology, a better system that you're bringing in, people are going to have resistance to it. And so they might have questions or and other issues that you need to address uh, as you're a freelancer trying to use uh, the technology that you think is actually best for the client, um, but maybe they don't know it yet. So I um, had a couple ideas and would happy to happy to chat with you guys and uh, and see what else you guys have come up with as well. Cool. Well, I'm a little curious for the rest of the panel. How often do you have some kind of objection, you know, Ruby versus, say, PHP or .NET or Java or something? I don't have it all that rarely, mostly because people are coming to me knowing the technologies that I work with. So I do uh, Rails work, but I also do Drupal work, which I'm kind of like phasing out. So most of the time, people are coming to me specifically looking for that stuff. So I don't have to do a whole lot of uh, talking out of sometimes, but not so much. Interesting. Anyone else? Yeah, I agree with Ash. And I I somehow think that's uh, I'm being too technical or contacted too late in the process and that limits the value prop but uh yeah i mean for the most part uh the technology stack is always an on issue and it's pretty much assumed that it'll be uh ruby or rails and that's just how they have come to me in the first place i guess yeah, so I, I, I should I should say, I mean, just Jevin, my caveat is I do a lot of government and corporate work, and so um, they're kind of stuck in Microsoft land, and so that's uh, that's where I compete with. Sad for I've, them. I've definitely had people, you know, sort of 
wonder about the technology. I mean, it's, it's, look, there are different kinds of clients, right? Like, so the clients who come to me asking to help with their existing Rails software, obviously they're not, they're not going to argue with that. And the people who come and they don't know anything about technology and they just sort of come to me and maybe they've heard that Rails is this interesting, cool thing and I can do that. Well, they're obviously not going to object either. But I've definitely had some clients, like I had this guy I did some work for about a year and a half ago, and he came to me to continue work on a Rails project that, that someone else had started. And after about two months of me working on it, he said, you know, I like you, I like the work that you did, but there's no one else out there who can do this, and I'm not looking to have contractors or consultants do this forever. I want to have someone in-house. And because I want to bring it in-house, I'm just going to throw away all the software you've done and the previous people did. And we're going to move over to PHP because it's so much easier to find PHP people. And he did. Wow. Yeah, and that's a total cost of ownership question for them, right? Right. I mean, yeah. I said to him, look, it's possible that we can find people. I mean, he, he was based in Israel, find people here. It's also possible we could find people elsewhere. But he wanted people who were sort of close physically because he had bad experiences with overseas outsourcing. And so he said, well, you know, based, based on the availability of people and the cost of people also, I'm just going to move over to something else. But he was he was convinced that Rails was great, but as you said, like it's a cost of ownership thing and a moving forward as a business thing. Well, it's interesting because uh, I did a, it was kind of an interview. I went to breakfast with a potential uh, client, and uh, you know we're still talking. Um, he hasn't hired me yet, but uh, you know we had this conversation about the stack. You know, as far as Ruby versus PHP versus Java and things, and he he used to work for Omniture, which was purchased by Adobe. Then he worked for Adobe for a few years. And uh, so, you know, he's much more familiar with those technologies than he is with Ruby. And so, you know, we did have the conversation. And it's it's an interesting conversation a lot of times because it's, well, you could build that in PHP and it would work. You know, so what are the real trade-offs, you know? And so we start talking about, you know, how much time it's going to take to build and things like that. And, and just my perception of PHP from what I've done with it and what I, you know, what I do and don't know about it was kind of interesting. We had the same conversation about databases. You know, should I should I stick with a relational database or should I go with one of the NoSQL databases? And, you know, once again, it's an interesting conversation because you could make it work with PHP and some weirdo out there database behind it. But, you know, the question becomes, you know, how easy is it to maintain? How easy it to, is it to write? How does it affect my time to market and things like that? And I'm not convinced that Ruby is always the right tool. But I think a lot of times it can be. So so that's usually the conversation that I have. Yeah, I get that question sometimes. Because people are like, well, you're a Ruby guy. So under what circumstances would you not say to use Ruby? Um, and I'm like, well, for, what, for your typical web application, if you're coming to me, that's probably going to be my choice because that's what I'm most comfortable with. If you're going to someone else, you would undoubtedly hear something else. But I don't think there's any right or wrong answer for the sort of scale of thing that you're doing. If you're talking about something massive, either in terms of scope or scale or number of users, then maybe there'll be something else to talk about. But, you know, these are typically small to medium projects. I'm really curious. Uh, Curtis, do you run into these kinds of objections very often? Like we were saying earlier, I have a lot of people come to me for WordPress work. The biggest times that I've seen it is when someone's typically a Rails contractor has come to me for some front end work. And what we're really doing is just building a basic website with like five pages and a blog. And it's getting all built on Rails, which I am not convinced is necessarily the right option. And sometimes there's discussions about future 
like future what they want to do in the future. So they're going to build it on Rails now so they can continue with the same technology through their whole stack and future application plans. But that's about it. I'm for me, I say in the WordPress world, it's more, you know, someone wants to use a certain plugin or something as opposed to something else, right? They don't want to pay for something that's premium as opposed to just use the free ones, which can be good and cannot be good. Yep. Yeah, I mean, I was just looking, doing some research for the show here, and I found out that SharePoint, I mean, for five users, it's 1200 bucks for, like, the lowest license for SharePoint. And so if you're looking for, like, a low-cost, like, wiki-type co- collaboration tool, and you already have Active Directory set up, then, you know, that might be a good way to go for $1,500. There's not much that I can do for, you know, nine hours that would be able to compete with that. Maybe not, you know, but uh, that... I was thinking, wow, I might actually recommend SharePoint in some cases, which I never, ever, ever thought. Yeah, a lot of times, though, people are coming and and they don't want to spend that much on infrastructure. So, again, you know, you can talk about the trade-off there and and make it make sense. Totally, totally, totally. So, I'm I'm a little curious then... um, Jevin, how do you, how do you usually manage objections to me? Yeah, sure. So, so the two big ones that I come across is are uh, .NET and SharePoint. So, um, for .NET, it's, it's a bit uh, it's a bit tough because um, there's a lot more people who are developing in that. Um, so you can use your Windows environment you already have. It's free to use .NET. You might you already have a database probably you know SQL Express uh, is is free so um, so that's free and then SharePoint people are saying oh what can you do custom that I can't do in SharePoint and the answer is really there's quite a lot that you can't do in SharePoint for um, for custom for um, uh, for custom work in SharePoint so so really there's a couple things that I come up to that I that I'll bring across and ask them is first of all price I mean. If you're if you're doing a fixed price, or even if you're doing kind of an estimate um, for a project, I've always come under half price of a .NET person, either a .NET project, either from an agency or from a personal uh, on a personal level. I think because it's just so much faster to develop in Rails and maybe some of these uh, these rapid development frameworks. Like maybe Cake, I don't know, just to do a PHP throwdown, and maybe even .NET MVC, which is still pretty new and actually really inspired by Rails. So, so cost is a is a big factor. There's some other things too. I mean, when you can show that I, I've actually I can iterate and I can deploy to you a couple times a day, so you can actually see the features that come out. People get pretty impressed with that. So those are two off the top. Um, I have more, but maybe that have those two points for initial discussion. What do you guys think? Well, I, I think part of what you said has to do with your tools and part of you has to what you said has to do with your process and who you are. And and I think that's I think that's an interesting aspect is that, you know, a lot of these systems have deployment frameworks that make it easy to deploy and things. But, you know, what what you're saying is is I've got these tools, I've got it really easy, we can you know, we can put it up there and make it available to you immediately and things like that. You know, that, that lends more to process and understanding of your tools. Where you, when you talk about like the speed of development and things that you can do in Rails, you know you're, you're talking about both your knowledge of the framework and the fact that the framework gets a lot of stuff out of your way. Yeah, I deploy multiple times a day, often to clients as well on my say WordPress-based projects. Yeah, and you could do that with any framework, really. But yeah, it's nice that uh, it's just part of like the Rails culture. Yeah, it's certainly a way bigger mentality than it is in what I do at all. I am one of the fewer people that do that regularly i mean I'm, I'm sort of curious like maybe jevin and maybe the others so if someone comes to me and they want 
let's say Rails work or Postgres work or something, then fine, they're coming to me for that sort of thing. But if someone comes to me and says, what technology do you think is appropriate? I mean, isn't it sort of obvious to them that, I mean, maybe not, but that programmers have sort of uh, their, their personal preferences and strong preferences often and are willing to say, well, you want to use the language that I know best, not because I know it best, but because it really is best. And that's not always so convincing for clients, you know, that they don't, they, they see this as sort of self-promotion. So I'm wondering how you get around that sort of, uh, that feeling that clients might have or potential clients might have. I think it depends. I mean, I've done WordPress work and I've had clients come to me saying, we want to do this and that. And like, they want to integrate, um, a form stuff into WordPress. And I was like, well, I could do it in Rails because I can, you know, hack in and, you know, do stuff in the session and cookies, but it's going to make a lot more sense to write this integration in PHP, like a standalone PHP app than it would be to do it in Rails just because it's the same code base. And then like legacy support, like if someone else wants to support it, they don't have to know PHP and Rails. I mean, and whenever I talk to clients, I say, look, I'm, I'm going to be biased. I've been doing Rails for a long time. I've done other things, but I'll try to work with you and figure out like what's going to be the best tool to use to get what you need. And if that's something that I can't provide you, you know, so be it. I'll try to help you find someone else, but I want it to be a good fit all around. Yeah, I do the same thing. Um, I, I definitely kind of give them the lay of the land when it comes to like, if you are, if this is something you're going to have to be maintaining after I'm done with this project, are you going to be able to find people? Is it going to be within your price range? Uh, all of those things are things that I discuss with the client before we decide on a new project. And, you know, sometimes the technologies that I work with aren't the right things for them. And I'm perfectly fine with referring them to someone else that, you know, maybe, you know, works with .NET or whatever that would be a better fit for them. Yeah, one other thing I want to add to that is that a lot of times I'll, yeah, it's usually an infrastructure question and, you know, maintainability question. Um, If I don't feel like I'm the right fit, then I'll refer them. But a lot of times what I'll do is I'll also say, look, as far as this particular technology, you know, PHP or WordPress or Django or whatever it is, you know, I'm not an expert, but uh, when it comes to programming, I know what I'm doing. And when it comes to these other technologies that you're talking about, you know, which database you want to use and things like that, you know, I, I know quite a bit and I'm, I'm willing to help you with that. And so in a lot of cases, um, I found that they'll consult me for an hour or two here or there when they have questions and want a second opinion. And um, it, it really, it, it's paid off for me, but it's also paid off in a lot of ways for my clients. Because then they get the benefit of my experience, and they also realize that in the areas where I don't know what's going on, I just tell them I don't know. So they'll ask me a question about the PHP framework or the Python framework, and I'll just tell them, you know, I, I, I don't know. I could find out if you want me to, but I don't know. And then they get what they need, and, and that's really what I'm about. I found those referrals to be absolutely priceless when I sent someone somewhere else for anything. Quite often, even if they've had a good work from the other developer, the first person they come back to for the next project is me, just because I sent them somewhere else with no, like I didn't want any money, I just said, go, this is the best person to talk to. Mm-hmm. For me, I think one of, the, one of the big things that's helped is, initially, I was branding myself really as a Ruby on Rails developer, you know, and now what I'm referring to myself as a software consultant specializing in end-to-end applications um, I've really taken the technology aspect out from that. So, so the whole time I'm talking with the client, we're talking about what they're looking to have done and, and the capabilities of, of their product. And it's only really at the end that they might ask, 
oh, you know, what, what, what language or what framework are you going to be using? And I'll tell them Rails. And we've already come to this point where they're so convinced that my organization is able to do this for them that uh, it's, it's usually a mute point because they're just so excited to actually, actually get it completed. So, so I really try to de-emphasize the technology that we use. But of course, in some, in, uh, you, you can't get away from that discussion in a lot of, uh, in a lot of places. Where I found recently that there's been sort of more, I don't know if flexibility is the, the word, but more sort of issues, debate, discussion is actually not so much on the server stuff for all the reasons everyone has said, but actually on the client side stuff and the JavaScript stuff. And there, there's just so much going on, both good and sort of chaotic, that it seems like there's a new JavaScript framework that comes out every week or two that people are saying, well, can you do it in this? And can you do that in that? And then it's very hard to sort of do an apples to apples comparison partly because there's just so much out there. Has anyone sort of encountered where people say, well, you must do this in Backbone, you must do this in, I don't know, Meteor, and uh, you don't necessarily know it or you don't think it's the right thing for the job? Uh, yeah, I don't know about the right thing. I've seen people come say, like, you know, we have Backbone, and most of the time that's because they have legacy code or they have other developers that know Backbone, and they're like, you know, this component of the stack is non-optional. If you're going to work with us, you have to do it. But most of my clients, when they, when I talk with them, they're like, we don't care what you use to make it work. Just make it work. Make it, you know, do have this interaction, have this kind of responsiveness. And that's basically all they care about. Yeah. I found the, the issue is with the big, I guess the people that have just a little bit of technical knowledge and have heard of whatever bootstrap or anything and say, we have to use it when you ask them why they have no idea, but they still want to require it. In my experience, those are kind of clients to shy away from. Uh, if they're making decisions without having all the knowledge behind it, that's kind of a warning sign for me for a client. Yeah. On, on the back end, again, one other thing that's come up is sometimes they, uh, they're really keen on Ruby on Rails or really keen on Node.js. And so when we start talking about the problems, that's when, or some of the problem that they want solved, then I start talking to them and, and say, okay. You know, these problems are solved really well by the paradigm that is supported by Ruby on Rails. And these other things are, they work really well for Node.js. But we can make them work one way or the other. And, you know, but you may want to look at a hybrid approach and, you know, take both of them for their strengths and uh, work it out that way. And, I mean, ultimately, there, there's no single right way to do it. And uh, I think helping people understand the trade-offs a lot of times is really where I kind of sell them on going with me. And most of the time uh, between that and just the way that I, you know, interact with them and things, you know, they, they really wind up buying me. They don't wind up buying Rails. It seems like it depends a lot on the client. I mean, if you have a very business-like client that, you know, I have this business problem, I need you to solve it, they're very much use whatever technology you know or you think is best, you know, talk to me about the long-term maintainability, value, all that stuff. But if you have, say, like a lead developer of an existing team, you're not going to have a lot of flexibility in changing the stack around. I mean, you might be able to make a suggestion here or there, but it's going to be a political uphill battle type thing. And so I think, you know, based on your client, like, you know, are they a technical, are they non-technical? Is it a new business thing? Is there like legacy code that they're already working with? I think that's really the dynamic of, you know, convincing someone to use something different, or even if you can. So, Jevin, you said you had some other, what do you call them, objections that people have to Ruby or Rails. And mm -hmm. e even if you don't do Ruby or Rails, I, I think some of these objections, they give you examples of ways to, you know, to talk to people about them. So I'm still curious to hear about them. 
Sure. Um, not so much, I guess, objections, because usually it's uh, guilty until proven innocent, right? It's like, why aren't you doing this in .NET, of course? Right. Of course, I should be doing it in .NET, but here's not why I'm not. And so some other things that I've kind of shown that, that are useful in Rails, maybe PHP is going this way as well, but one thing was really cool is showing them relish in Cucumber. Um, I know a lot of people are skeptical about actually about the usefulness of Cucumber and involving the stakeholder, but there's been multiple occasions where the client asked me for updated documentation. I can literally just print off the or email them the Cucumber feature and send it to them, and they're like, wow, this is great. This is exactly what I was looking for, um, especially for API stuff, um, where it just really shows the API call and the response that they should be receiving. They just love it because it's up-to-date code, and so when I could tell a client, listen, you're going to have up-to-date uh, documentation that you can pass off to your developers and I can prove to you that it's going to work exactly like this. They get pretty excited about that. Um, actually, as much as someone could get um, excited about documentation. The other thing that, that people seem to really like is just Twitter Bootstrap in general. I mean, it's by no means a Rails-specific uh, you know, CSS framework, but yet it looks amazing. And I don't know any .NET uh, projects that have really incorporated that. That that said, I don't deal too many too much with .NET projects. But to say, listen, you're going to have mobile. Uh, it's going to be mobile optimized out of the box. People get pretty excited about that as well. So a real documentation that's up to date, that's testable, and Twitter Bootstrap have been big selling feature, features for me. Yeah, I think that's interesting too. That you know, again, it comes back to you know, I can do Twitter Bootstrap doesn't necessarily um, necessarily make you stand out because Twitter Bootstrap is pretty easy to set up, but helping people understand what the benefits are and letting them know that you know how to do whatever it is that solves their problem, I mean, I mean that's a big payoff. Well, even just look at look at this web look at this web app on your cell phone right now. I did this. There's very few apps that look decent on a phone, really. Yeah. I mean, or when I say apps, I mean websites. Well, it it sounds like I mean, and Chuck had mentioned this before also, but it sounds like it all comes down to trust. Right, and I even I even say this a lot of times to clients when I'm first talking to them, the, the the non-technical clients, where I say, "Look, I don't know how my car works really well, and so when something goes wrong, I bring it to the garage, and I have to trust them that it's going to work well. And if I have a good relationship, if I can trust them, if it works afterwards for a good price, then I'll keep working with them." And I say, "And that's sort of what you're going to get with me, where you need to be able to trust me. And when you trust me, then I'm going to make decisions that you might not understand on the technical side." The trust will mean that I'm trying to do it in your best interest. And once you get that client's trust, then everything else is way smoother. Yeah, so true. Yeah, I just, like, I end up getting a ton of clients that are absolutely burned. I was just yesterday looking at code for a very, a fairly high profile greeting card site, and they have uh, absolutely terrible code that was written like three months ago, and they were charged like 20 grand for. And yeah, I'm lucky I have a personal recommendation from someone that they very much trust from years past. Otherwise, they are pretty hardcore on what they want and what they will accept because they've been burned so badly. Awesome. Yeah, it's always it's always nice to have people come to you when they have had bad experiences with other people and they say, oh, wow, it's so nice to be able to talk to someone who really understands what I need. Yeah, the other thing that's interesting is that a lot of times I've, I've run into the objection to Rails based on being burned by another Rails dev. And, uh, you know, it, it paints us all with that, that kind of brush. And so they're like, well, you know, people who use Ruby are just trying to scam you. And, you know, it's not the case. It's a tool like any other, but, you know, y it does hurt. And, uh, so, you know, you have to go out of your way to make it a positive experience. 
we don't hear about those .NET people getting burnt because they just go to another .NET developer, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't learn their lesson the first time, eh? <laughs> I'm, I'm trying not to bash on .NET, but uh, yeah, you, you spend enough money to get kind of married into that ecosystem. So, Well, look, I mean, not, not that I do any .NET work. You know, I, <laughs> as, as I tell people, I've heard rumors that Microsoft is a very popular maker of operating systems and languages and applications, but I, I'm not sort of exposed to them in my day-to-day life. But it is true that there are plenty of people out there who are inside of the Microsoft ecosystem. And what I've heard is that if you're willing to sort of buy into that, then .NET is incredibly smooth because it's built to be integrated into all of that. Yeah. And so it might actually be the right choice for an organization that has Microsoft everything, database, web server, servers, clients, and so forth. Yeah, and that speaks back to the total cost of ownership, right? That context switching for their whole team to new new languages and new frameworks is so, so expensive. Yeah, well, and they're right. already heavily invested into the ecosystem that they have. Yeah, I had this, I had this client, that reminds me, I had this client uh, for a few years, actually, where the whole place was a .NET shop, and somehow someone had convinced them, they, they, they made sort of black boxes that went into manufacturing places. So it was uh, not a web app at all, but it was a .NET application that they would sort of install in different factories, and the database used in there was Postgres. So I was brought in as the Postgres guy to help them out. Oh, wow. And first, right, right. So basically, they were sort of wrestling with a Postgres driver for .NET, and we would sort of work in parallel. I would do the Postgres stuff on my Mac and then sort of feed it over to their .NET system, and they would import it. But it, it was like two different worlds, and they brought in a new vice president of development or CTO or something like that. And he said, this is madness. <laughs> Why are we using this? We can't find Postgres developers, whereas... Uh, what would it be? Uh, SQL Server developers are sort of a dime a dozen. So um, they've been phasing out Postgres over the last year or two and hired some god-awful number of consultants to come in and, and switch things over to .NET. And I think they're pretty happy as a result. That that kind of leads me into another thing. You know, when you mentioned that uh, those uh, SQL Server developers are kind of a dime a dozen, there are two things that I've run into. And one is, is that um, you're the only Ruby guy I know, so I'm not sure if I, you know... If you get hit by a bus, then what do I do? Um, I, although I'm getting that less and less. The other thing that I hear a lot is the argument that, oh, well, I could go and hire a PHP guy in India for $20 or less an hour. So why would I go with Rails when you cost so much more? <laughs> yeah, even though you can hire them for less in India, it's not, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just not <laughs> very hard. insert the general <laughs> joke about the bad Indian programmer there. But although I do know a few that are really good, it by and large has not been great code I've seen. Well, I mean, it's so, like if, you know, if you need to have heart surgery, you're going to go down in the back alley because it costs only 50 bucks. Yep. What typically happens with me is if someone raises the, or, or someone raises the idea of outsourcing to India or Eastern Europe or somewhere, I'll say, well, I've heard mixed things about that. <laughs> and they'll typically say, mixed, really? It's all been terrible. <laughs> I haven't had a good experience at all. And I say, well, okay, I haven't heard really mixed things about it. I've heard only bad things, but I didn't want to make you feel bad. Yeah. Well, let's, let's keep in mind too that if, if you hired a developer in the United States for $20 an hour, you probably wouldn't be getting great work either. So I, I think it's kind of unfair to assume that outsourcing any work to people in India is going to be poor when we're Americans that can pay a lot more, but specifically go to a country where we know we can pay a lot less. So maybe I'll, I'll rephrase it. There are, I mean, the, the Indian uh, engineers and programmers I've met have been extraordinarily brilliant. But they tend not to be, in my experience, at the outsourcing firms that most people discover. 
especially if they're discovering them for price reasons as opposed to technology reasons. Yeah, I mean, and without this show devolving into something that <clears throat> it completely shouldn't be, I mean, just finding quality people anywhere is a struggle in and of itself. But then when you try to add in culture differences and communication lag to a project that might not necessarily have great leadership in the beginning, I mean, you're going to have a problem no matter who it is. I mean, I, I work for a current client or one of my current clients outsourced to Russia. They had, there was a guy on site here in North Carolina was like the biz guy. Then there was a project manager on the ground in Russia and they had a team of .NET people in Russia, 10 guys or something like that. And so they were a .NET shop and they were mostly doing .NET work, mostly outsourced to Russia. They had a couple in-house .NET people and somehow they got convinced to build their API in Ruby using Sinatra. And they had two guys local to them that were doing the Ruby. And I got brought in as another rescue project. I got in and they ended up firing everybody, right? They got rid of the Russian team because there's way too much communication miscommunication with the Russian team. Uh, there was idioms that weren't getting passed across. There's culture differences. You see it a lot with Indian developers. They will go out of their way to never, ever tell you no. They will tell you yes for everything and try to figure it out later. And it's just a cultural thing. So, I mean, there are a ton of, a ton of reasons that outsourcing won't work any more than having smart people in your office won't work if you can't communicate with them. Yeah, and then just to add to that and kind of go along with Ash's point, you know, my experience is that, you know, you basically get what you pay for. So if you're if you're paying a low cost, you know, you're going to have all the problems that come with that, you know, be it communication problems or other, you know, every once in a while you do get lucky, though, and you find that guy that doesn't realize that he can make a whole lot more than $30 an hour doing rails. And so then, you you know, you kind of get a steal on that. But you know, for the most part, if they're not charging that much, they either don't have a whole lot of experience or you're going to experience some other, you know, language or other issues as you uh, move across the cultural barriers. And that as we we're talking, so since I brought up that other client and as we're talking about hardware, they've been the only client I've ever told them not to use Ruby. So like I said, somehow they're convinced to use Ruby and Sinatra as their API. They have no Ruby experience. They're .NET shop through and through, probably classic ASP before that. SQL Server, all Windows, never never touched a Linux box, and they have managed Rackspace access. And I told them, I mean, so they wanted to hire another junior Russian guy to do the Ruby dev and wanted me to basically mentor him for a couple hours a month and bring him up to speed. And it's like, there's no way that's ever going to happen, and you're paying me a lot right now to fix a problem that you already have. So... You guys should really consider stopping this Ruby stuff and rewriting it and .NET. I mean, that's 95% of their expertise is, so they should deal with it or they're going to have to hire somebody or stick with me or some other contractor for a long time to deal with their Ruby. So one of the issues that does happen, which we already touched on, was long-term maintenance of a project. The one project that I lost recently, they were a .NET shop, and they said, okay, um, we really love what you're proposing. We think it makes a lot of sense. But what happens when you're gone? Because we are a .NET shop. Um, we already talked about this a bit. Um, and I said, you know what's true? 
I'm a, I'll be around. I'm not planning on going anywhere. By the way, that's a not not a very strong point to to, to use uh, to start out. So since the approach that I've had, which has been good response from people, um, a couple things. So in the contract, um, I say I'm going to give you bug fixes for 60 or 90 days for free. So if it's within scope. I'm just going to go ahead and fix it for you if there's a problem. You guys are going to deploy it. We don't want to have any issues from the beginning, so I'm going to cover you off, no problem. And then I'm a big fan of offering a retention package to do regular maintenance for the client. This is a great way where you can make an extra couple hundred bucks or thousand bucks, depending on, on the client, I guess. So not just uh, saying, I'm let's, let's allocate five hours to do work, which may or may not be needed. Say, I'm going to, th- I'm going to monitor it for all security issues. Because uh, Lord knows we got Rails problems coming out in the past <laughs> past six months or so, but you know you just put it, attach it onto Code Climate, and Code Climate will send you an email when there's issues with your uh, with Rails or any other gem that you have associated with it. And then you can also have it plugged in with your acceptance test. You can do live testing against your APIs to be sure that things are 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 working correctly. So you can have it all set up, really automated. But yet you're the one that's kind of responsible to be sure that it's all working properly. You have like a you have like a ping server that just tests different API calls or just the website to make sure it's working. So you can do that as well. I've offered a trading package for people, uh, even for five days or three days of just kind of basic training on Rails or Ruby to their decent developer. And no one's taken me up on that, which has been unfortunate because I think it's a great way to, to you know, keep your development team with new technologies. But for some reason, no, no one's ever, ever uh, taken me up on that. But uh, those are some ways that, that I've done already. Well, there's another aspect too, because I had this concern with one of my clients is I was the only developer. I was the one doing Rails. They worked in another language primarily. And basically the, the problem is what's called the bus factor. It's how many people on your team or in your company can't get hit by a bus to actually completely kill your company. And in their case, because I was the only Rails, the only Ruby guy doing their system, the bus factor was one. If I got hurt or got sick or anything else, they, the project basically would die. And so, that was a big concern they had. And that comes back to the maintenance stuff of like, you know, what if you leave? What if you're not around? What are we going to do? And the way I helped them with that is did a lot of documentation so that if they had to bring in even a junior Rails developer, they could kind of get in and kind of keep the thing at least limping along until they figured out what's going on. But that's, that's a big concern, especially if it's a, a client that is in a different technology or in a stack that is not like they're, they're switching stacks or something like that. So that's that's another thing to think about, even above and beyond the retainer and maintenance agreements, which I used with them too. Have you had success with that though? Like actually getting them to either hire or to train up their internal team, which is which is fantastic if you can get them to do that. Um, let's see, one client, yeah. Um, this one I talked about, uh, not so much, but we got it. I can't remember. I think it's like it ended up being a three or four year constant kind of maintenance project going on. And it got to the point where they didn't really need any more work. And so it was like, you know, we'll contact you if there's like emergency stuff. But basically the stuff, everything stabilized and it kept working exactly how they wanted. And it, it depends on the project too. Like that, this, this app of the long term was a kind of an internal project. So if it went down for a couple hours, it wasn't a big deal. It just would make it harder for people to do their jobs, but it wouldn't actually cause the company to lose like millions of dollars. Interesting. I've, I've sometimes had uh, people ask me how long I've been doing consulting. Or contracting, and I say, well, I've been doing it since basically this has been my full-time job since 1995, and they say, oh, well, that's good to hear, because uh, what they're sometimes worried about is that I'm sort of doing this between jobs or between startups, between companies, and that as soon as something sort of really exciting and interesting comes my way, then I'll say, well, guys, it's been fun doing the consulting, but now I'm off to take a real job. 
Uh, and so they don't want to be left high and dry, especially if it's a long-term relationship. So the fact that I've been doing this for a while tends to uh, put them a bit more at ease. Well, I mean, I think that's like a big aspect of consulting in general. Like the client's coming to you, they have concerns, they have fears that it's not going to work out, whether you know the technology is going to fail, you're going to flake out, you know, a whole bunch of things. And so if you've been working in Ruby or you've been freelancing for a long time, that's kind of uh, a chip in your shop and your side to kind of help you say like, look, I've been doing this for five years or I've been doing this for 10 years. I've seen a lot of things that, you know, you can trust me with that. And so, you know, anything like that can actually help kind of overcome objections that they might have. And especially like that, this happened a couple of times is I did PHP before I did Ruby. And so I know PHP and I know Ruby. And so if a client comes to me with a PHP project, they're porting to Ruby. The fact that I have experience in both sides of that is actually a bonus for me versus if I came from Java into Rails. Interesting. All right. Well, are there any other um, aspects of this we want to talk about before we get to the picks? Um, there's one. We mentioned it. Um, I Like I said, I do only Ruby right now and I guess JavaScript. But I always try to keep like a network open of people that do like Python, system administration, Java, you know, all the other things. So that if a client comes to me and they like want to integrate with Java stuff, I have people to refer them to that I either know a little bit or maybe I've worked with, like maybe they did a bit of Ruby on another project. And so if you're freelancing, that kind of referral network is actually huge. Like I think, was it last week or whatever, Curtis, someone mentioned me asking about a PHP thing and I just sent them your way. It took me like two seconds. Like I was like, oh, this guy needs PHP. I know Curtis. He's the best fit for that. I don't even know anything about the project. But having that kind of network and building that up is a pretty good asset for your business. Yep. All right. Well, um, I'm going to go ahead and uh, wrap this up. We'll start doing the picks. Uh, thanks for coming, Jevin. And thanks for suggesting this topic. It's been interesting to talk about. Right on. All right. Reuven, we're going to make you go first. What are your picks? Okay. Let's see. Ah, so I've got four picks today. So the first one is I've been playing a bit more and more with uh, Clojure, the Lisp language. I went to MIT, and there we were brainwashed to believe that Lisp was the only language worth talking about in the world. Um, and so it's quite a pleasure to sort of come back and play with it and use it. And it's it's really, I mean, I've only sort of started to stick my toes in it. And so uh, using, uh, tried to do some uh, web development with it. And so I've been using this thing called Composure, which is a simple web framework for Clojure. And it's been great fun so far. Uh, second thing is, um, I've been doing some traveling lately, and my wife is going to be doing some traveling. And so I definitely want to recommend the not only TripAdvisor, the site, and not only TripAdvisor, the apps, but they have these offline apps you can use, which I've found to be amazing. Because basically, they, they let you put your phone when you're traveling and don't want to rack up data charges for roaming. So you can use your phone you can, in airplane mode, and then use either Wi-Fi or GPS, and it has a map built in. And so you can find all the things you want and sort of walk around and get lost or get unlost. And I found this to be super, super helpful in a bunch of cities I visited. Third thing is uh, I fi just finished reading a series to my seven-year-old son. It's called Ordinary Boy. And it's this great series for kids about the only – it's about this city called Superopolis where everyone has a superpower. Some kind of strange and some actually sort of useful, except, of course, there's only one person named Ordinary Boy who has no superpowers. And, of course, he ends up saving the day. And it's just riotously funny for anyone who's ever had an interest in superheroes. And um, my, my son really enjoyed it as well. The final thing is uh, recently I've started getting to playing uh, Words with Friends, or as I started to call it, Words with People Who Used to Be Your Friends. Uh, and, uh, so not only have I been playing, uh, sort of random people on online, but also, uh, my wife and my 12 year old daughter 
and we've been having a huge amount of fun playing each other. And you can sort of tell, like, you submit a word, and you hear bling in the next room, and then you hear, oh, no. <laughs> so that's been, that's been fun for all of us, and it's really also gotten my daughter into, uh, you know, sort of words and playing these games and sort of an adult level. Anyway, those are my picks for this week. Awesome. Eric, what are your picks? All right, so uh, my pick, it's going to be a whole website because it's like about six or seven pages, but I, I've had a standing desk for a while, and last week I actually got a treadmill, and I'm doing kind of like the walking desk thing now. And so this site actually talked about it, and it's kind of a do-it-yourself. Like you can get any kind of standing desk or Ikea hack desk or whatever, and there's this treadmill on Amazon that's relatively cheap, kind of low profile, and you can disassemble it, change some of the wiring, all that stuff, and you end up with like a treadmill desk. And I've actually been using it on the call, and I've already, oh, what am I at? I've already burned almost 150 calories just talking and have done like 500 steps, which is, you know, 0.2 miles. So... Uh, if you're into the standing desk or kind of like the healthy work environment stuff and looking at treadmill stuff, I'd recommend this because the treadmill was only about 250 bucks plus, you know, the desk and you can make, make a desk out of just stacking books up and stuff like that. So it's pretty cool. Nice. Uh, Jeff, what are your picks? So I have two and I've probably said this one before. Or it's probably been mentioned uh, across the network many, many times, but uh, Com Freaks, again, I'm um, pick them. They have the Rails Conf. Presentations. There's 71 videos online, so if you missed uh, RailsConf, it's a great way to catch up on uh, all the talks over there. And the other one is Karma. It's a uh, no-contract, pay-as-you-go Wi-Fi uh, hotspot, but it's it's set up so that you make it. Uh, you try to share your Wi-Fi with other people, so it's is designed to be shared. And the more you share it, the more free data you get it's it's only available in like 30 cities or so uh it's based on sprint networks too so if you're interested and you're looking for a hotspot it looks like a cool idea so those are my two picks awesome ash what are your picks i have two last week i believe um i got my fitbit flexin which i've been waiting on for a while because it was not in production yet but i just got it and uh it's it's much like the, the Fitbit One, which you clip onto your clothes somewhere, but this is actually like a bracelet, like almost like a watch. And it counts your steps and uh, measures your sleep, which was something that was really important to me because I don't have really high quality of sleep. And the nice thing is that it kind of lets you compete with your friends for like the most number of steps in the past seven days. And a bunch of my programming friends are on there, so I'm like competing with a bunch of them outstep the other one. So that's fun, and I highly recommend it. I really like it. And then the other one, um, I went to a, a dinner and bikes thing a couple days ago, and one of the people there was selling a book called Everyday Bicycling, How to Ride a Bike for Transportation, Whatever Your Lifestyle. And this is something that I started doing when I moved to Madison. I sold my car, and I only get around on foot, on bike, or by bus. And I really like how accessible this makes it for people who are doing Things like, you know, going grocery shopping where they have kids and getting around, you know, um, commuting and stuff. Um, so that's a really good book. And those are my two. Awesome. Curtis, have we heard your picks yet? No, you have not. There's so I'm many people pick. on this show, I can't keep it straight. Sorry. I know you're not going to ask one person three times like in the past. <laughs> <laughs> He's never done that. Oh, okay. I think it was you were the victim that time. <laughs> <laughs> He's never done that. <laughs> So I have two picks today. Uh, I'm going to pick Buffer app, but I know we talked about that last week in our social media stuff, but I've been using it 
I signed up for it during the podcast and it is excellent and I am loving it. It makes sharing things way easier. And then a couple episodes ago, I also talked about Trello and how I use it and had a post that was half finished. So it is finished now and up on my site. Yay. Awesome. All right. Well, I'll go next. So my first pick is another iPhone app. I picked uh, an iPhone app last time. Uh, this one is called Commit and it is awesome. Basically what it is, is you put in something that you want to do every day, kind of to start a habit. And then um, you mark it off every day and you kind of build up this big long streak. It's by Nathan Barry and it it's kind of nice. I kind of wish that it had an option or another app for like things I want to do every week, things I want to do every month, you know, things I need to do every three months. But uh, I'll, I guess I'll just, uh, I, I'll just use OmniFocus for that for right now. Anyway, the other app that I want to pick is it's, I forget what it's called. It's a mini golf for the iPhone. It's uh, anyway, it's a game I've been playing with my brother, mini golf matchup, and it's another iPhone app. And so um, basically you get to, uh, you, you take your turn and you play a hole and then the other person plays that hole and then the next hole and, and you get to watch the person who played the hole first, how they did it. And, uh, anyway, you can see, uh, who wins and stuff, but it's, it's a lot of fun and there are a whole bunch of different, uh, golf courses that you can play. So anyway, those are my picks and, uh, Jevin, what are your picks? Right on. So, um, two for me. Uh, less accounting. I just opened up an account with these guys maybe last week, two weeks ago. I mean, my bookkeeper uses QuickBooks to track of a lot of stuff. The pain, though, is when I want to go and review everything, I have to go and buy QuickBooks every single year, which sucks. So he's open to using less accounting to do my bookkeeping. And so far, it's been going great. It just sucks everything down from my uh, from my bank. And uh, they just did a relaunch of it, I think. So they rewrote or at least changed how the dashboard looks. So they don't have charts, but I think they're just reintroducing those again. Um, but anyways, so far, it's given me a lot more uh, knowledge already in terms of uh, the quality of my cash flow. Um, and the second thing is a book I just got from the library uh, that someone uh, that's, that's rated pretty highly on Amazon called Treat Your Own Neck by Robin, Robin McKenzie. Basically, it's just for people who have, um, you know, their neck is sore, uh, etc. and how you can do some simple exercises to make it better. Uh, it's strongly pushed towards people who are at desks for a long time. You know, maybe people who'd be listening to freelancer show. I don't know, just saying. But um, anyway, it talks a lot about posture and how you can get to good posture, hopefully by doing these uh, simple exercises. So I've been doing it a couple days and it's been feeling better already. So um, he's hard on the cell to go to one of his own, you know, associates or that you're trained by him. But I think if you just go by the exercise itself, uh, you'll feel better. So um, those are my two for this week. Nice. All right. Well, let's go ahead and uh, wrap up the show. Thanks for coming again. It was awesome. It's been my pleasure. Uh, I'd love to do this again sometime. All right. Well, we're going to end the show. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you all next week.